Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for this time to spend together. Lord, that song says it all. Your dying breath has bought us life. So we just thank you so much for that. We, we thank you for your word that reveals you to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that works in us. We thank you for this fellowship. And I just pray that uh, you work through your word and, and the Holy Spirit works through me to, to change hearts and to change minds here. And that we go forth from here as not just hearers, as, as Pavan said, but, but doers of the word. So we thank you for this time and ask your blessings on it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat, please. I'm going to start today's message in a way that I'm willing to bet that none of you have ever seen before. And that is, I'm going to give everyone in the congregation right now a guilt-free, no-judgment opportunity to leave. No, I'm I'm serious. I'm serious. And let me tell you why. It's because um, what I had planned for us today is to spend the next 45 minutes together exploring the definition of a single word. We're going to spend the next 45 minutes, you heard me right, exploring the definition of a single word. Now, I'm an attorney. This is something that's right up my alley, right? uh, This sounds like a heck of a lot of fun to me, but I understand not everyone in here may share my character flaws. So this is your opportunity to go. No one? All right. Look, you guys, you guys asked for it. And and so so here we go. Actually, I saw Jenny packing up before I even told her why. I was giving you a chance. Anyways, take that for this. But, but, no, but seriously, if you're still here, if you stuck around, it's probably because you're wondering what this word is that I'm talking about and why it might be so important that we would spend 45 minutes together defining it. And I think to answer that question, we can go right to the, to the passage that we're going to explore together today. And that's John chapter 9 at verses 35 through 38. And in this passage, we come to it at the end of this an account in John chapter, chapter 9 of Jesus' interaction with a blind man who, who he heals miraculously. And for reasons we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, he, this man was ultimately expelled from the, the synagogue as a, re, as a result of this. And, and where we find ourselves here is at Jesus' last interaction with this individual. And here's what the Word of God says about Jesus' encounter with him. This is John chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, him being the blind man that Jesus had healed, had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Do you believe, Jesus asked. I believe, the man answered. To believe or not to believe. Belief, it's the focal point of our passage today. To believe or not to believe is the theme of our study of the Gospel of John. To bring people to a belief in Christ is John's express purpose in writing the Gospel of John. In chapter 20, verse 21 of the Gospel of John, we read, he tells us that, that he has written his Gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have eternal life in his name. This question, to believe or not to believe, is the most important question we'll answer in our entire lives. Indeed, it's the most important question we'll answer in all of our existence. Jesus tells us over and over again that to believe in him is the key to our salvation and eternal life. 
So if to believe or not to believe is the most important question we'll ever answer in our lives, doesn't that necessarily mean that the definition of belief is the most important definition we'll ever know? And so that's why I think it's worth us spending 45 minutes together defining that word. And and thank you all for sticking around. I think you'll be glad that you did because the Bible is actually crystal clear in exactly what it means when it uses this term belief. And we should be crystal clear too that we understand what the Bible means when it says someone has believed in Jesus Christ. Belief, as it's used in the Bible, I'm going to read this so that I get it just right. As As it's used in the Bible and by Jesus here has embedded in it two concepts. Belief is first an intellectual assent to the truth about Jesus as set forth in the scripture. It is first an intellectual assent to the truth about Jesus is set forth in Scripture. There's an objective component to it, a truth component to it. And second, and yes, we'll see that order matters. Second, belief is to make a decision based on that truth to enter into a trust relationship with Jesus Christ. So it has two two components, an objective component and a subjective component. So how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, we can start with that objective component. So first, you have to have knowledge and to acknowledge certain facts about Jesus in order to believe in him. And this is sort of a self-apparent first step, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it make sense that, that knowledge about something would always be a precondition to belief in it, right? I mean, imagine that you're a rock climber, for example, right? And you have a belief that the rope that you're using is going to hold your weight in case you fall. Well, that belief is necessarily going to be preceded by certain knowledge of facts about that rope, right? You're going to know how it was made and what it was made out of and what its carrying capacity is. Maybe you have experience being held by ropes like that before. The knowledge of those facts will precede your belief that that rope will hold you. In a similar way, knowledge of facts about Jesus are going to precede our ability to believe in him. That's our objective belief. And it's very important that the facts that we believe about Jesus are accurate, that they're true. This is because belief is reference. The, the, the truth and the power of a belief is derived from the thing in which we believe. Right? Going back to, to, the, to the rope, if, if you misunderstand the nature of something, your belief in that thing is going to be meaningless at best and, and dangerous at worst. Let's imagine that, that you thought that you knew facts about this rope, that it, that it was a, a mountain climbing rope that was rated, I don't know, to, to carry a, a thousand pounds. Fabian was here. He could tell us exactly about mountain climbing ropes, right? But, but it's rated to hold a thousand pounds. Those are the facts that you thought you believed. But in reality, the fact was that it was, a, a, I don't know, a 20-pound clothesline, right? Your, your starting premise would be false, and so your belief would be dangerous, Right? Similarly, we could think about someone who, who's misguided and, and thinks they know a fact for certain that the benevolent spirit of Buddha inhabits a little porcelain Buddha statue. And their belief based on that fact is if they just rub the belly of that Buddha statue, they're going to be blessed in their life or have good luck. People actually believe this, but their starting premise is false, and so their belief is powerless. This is exactly what Jeremiah is talking about in chapter 10 and verse 5 when he warns the Israelites about believing in idols. He says this about a belief that's based on on false facts. He says, Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried because they cannot walk. I love this. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. 
Now, we all may not be melting our earrings to make golden calves in here, but I think there's a really uh, an actual risk to us because a, a belief can be meaningless or it can be powerless, even if it's based on the God in Scripture, if it's based on a misunderstanding or an incomplete understanding of that God in Scripture, right? We can see this in the people who saw Jesus as a Savior in the Scriptures in a material wealth sense or in a political power sense, right? These are the people that we saw back when we were in John chapter 6 that Jesus criticized for following him. This is just after the feeding of the 5,000, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus criticized them because they were following him because they saw him as this endless supply of miraculous bread, as a source of, superior, of, of physical sustenance and, and, and wealth, right? Their starting premise about Jesus that he was a miraculous bread vending machine, was false. And so their belief in him was hollow. And I think we can see this in the church today. Not our church, but, for example, in the churches that believe in the prosperity gospel, right? People who look in the Bible and they see a God that's portrayed as a, a doting father who will bring us wealth and health and fame and happiness and comfort if we would just believe in him, if we would just send an evangelist a check every month. Do you guys see that belief in a God like this that doesn't really exist is no different than belief that, that Buddha's spirit inhabits that statue? There's really no difference there, is there? And on the other end of the spectrum, we can consider Martin Luther. Now, most of us know in here that Martin Luther was a monk in the 16th century. As a monk at that time, he spent his entire life devoted to studying the scriptures, writings about God, and being obedient to God and understanding God. One would think that if anyone had a, an accurate understanding of God and, and therefore a well-founded belief in God, it would have been Martin Luther. But we find that that's not the case. Martin Luther's his religious tradition at the time had warped his understanding of God into something of a, of a tyrannical, cold, and, and distant father who expected an, an impossible perfection from his followers. Based on these incorrect starting premises, here's what Luther had to write about the God that he thought he knew. Is it not against all natural reason that God, out of his mere whim, deserts men, hardens them, damns them, as if he's delighted in sins and in such torments of the wretched for eternity? He who is said to, to be of such mercy and goodness. This appears iniquitous, cruel, and intolerable in God by which very many have been offended in all ages. And who wouldn't be? I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God? I hated him. In either case, whether you mistakenly see God as a doting father or as an abusive, tyrannical one as Luther did, in either case, even if it's a God, some other God of your own making, if you believe in that God rather than the God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, your belief is powerless. Instead, we have to believe in the true God, the triune God, as he's revealed himself to us in the Bible. We have to believe in the gospel as, as it's been revealed by Jesus Christ himself in the writings of the apostles. Most specifically and most fundamentally, we have to believe that Christ is God. We have to believe that we are sinners. We have to believe that our sin has separated us from God. We have to believe that salvation is only possible through Christ and that Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. 
Finally, we have to believe that Christ, in fact, died on the cross and was resurrected as proof that he had conquered sin and the grave. Interestingly, going back to our passage, we can see much of the same understanding in the blind man that Jesus encountered and who we see today came to belief. First, this man knew that he was a sinner and his sin had separated him from God. If we look back at at John chapter 9, where we started this in verse 1 and 2, at the beginning of the encounter, we see that it says that Jesus passed by. He saw a man who had been blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So we see here that even Jesus' disciples had this presupposition that this man was blind because of his own sin. Now we see that Jesus later corrects the the record with regard to this man's sins, connection to the blindness. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that based on the Jewish tradition at the time, this man would have been told from birth that he was blind because either he or his parents had sinned. It was a curse as a a consequence of his own sin. Whether that premise is right or not, the, the, the effect would have been that this man would have known that he was a sinner from birth. And he would have known that this sin had separated him from his proper relationship with God. He knew he was a sinner, and he knew that sin had separated him from God. Later in the encounter, we see that that Jesus healed this man of his blindness miraculously. In other words, this man saw that Jesus had miraculous power over the created universe. As we've seen before in the Gospel of John, what this demonstrated is that Christ was in fact God. He was the master of the created universe. This man knew he was a sinner. He knew his sin had separated himself from God. And he knew that Christ was God. We see that this man had been blind since his birth. The scripture doesn't tell us whether anyone had ever attempted to to heal him before. But certainly if they had, they had failed. No one had healed him until now in his adulthood until he met Christ. Christ healed him. So he knew no one could save him but Christ and that Christ indeed did save him. And finally, we can look at verse 35 that we read earlier. It says there that Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Importantly here is that this man saw that Jesus sought him out personally. Christ, as God, sought him out personally. So from this, this man knew that God desired a personal relationship with him and was willing to undergo actions in order to bring that relationship about. And so, yes, of course, as, as Pavan discussed last week, this man didn't know the full story of salvation, the full story of the gospel as we do, looking back with the benefit of the scriptures. But he did know and assent to true many of the facts about Jesus that, that we understand make up the gospel. And an assent to these facts, an objective belief in these truths about Jesus was part of what led him to his, to his biblical saving belief. So what does this all mean to us? Well, as a practical matter, for those of us who are already serving Jesus, who are already saved, I, I think what it is, it's a, it's a call for us to prepare, be prepared to share the gospel, to share these fundamental truths with people whenever we're called upon to do so. We need to be able to articulate these, these truths in, in, a, in a concise, in a convincing way so that other people have an opportunity to believe in the, in the God of the Bible as we've had that opportunity to in this church. And I know many of us have sort of like an elevator speech, right, about, about the gospel. We've had workshops here at, 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 the, at the chapel to give you the ability to, to simply articulate the gospel to other people. Many of us might remember from, uh, from youth group, right, like the five-finger, like, I am a sinner. God is holy. Like, do you guys 
No one remembers that. I don't even know if I remember all of it. But there's, there are mnemonic devices. There are things that, that help us to be able to concisely articulate the gospel and the fundamental truths of the Bible to people and plant those seeds so that they can come to the faith as we have. I think we can also see in here a call to believers to, to constantly be in the, in the Word and, and reaffirming our knowledge and understanding of God so that our belief always maintains its tie to the foundational belief and truth uh, and foundational truth about God, right? Because the minute our understanding of God becomes errant, our belief starts to become errant because we can go back to what we were talking about earlier. And if our belief is, if our understanding is errant, we're believing in something that in a real way is not really even God. Right? And I'm not trying to, to, to scare you. It's, this is not about your losing your salvation in this way. We can certainly lose our path in this way. And I think we have to be really careful to always reaffirm our, our foundational, objective belief in Christ. So that's the objectively. Intellectual assent to the truth about Jesus as set forth in Scripture is a necessary first component to biblical belief. But we see in Scripture that it's necessary but it's not sufficient. We see that, that something more is needed. Look at the Pharisees, for example. We know they were immersed in Scripture. They knew essentially everything that a human being could possibly know about God at that time. But we see this didn't lead them to true belief. Look too at the, we call it the, in your, the rich young ruler, right? In Matthew chapter 19, this is another individual that presumably he knew the Torah. He knew all the truths that would have been revealed about God in, in those scriptures, right? He tells Jesus when he comes to him that he's obeyed all the commandments since his youth. So he knew about God and presumably he knew about Jesus's ministry and accepted it, it to at least to some degree truths about Jesus. Because he goes to Jesus and he calls him good teacher. He asked him for the, the key to the man's salvation. So he may have known some about and believed true some about Jesus. But despite the fact that he knew about God, despite the fact that he knew objective truths about Jesus, we see at the end of that story, what does he do? He rejects Jesus and he walks away, crestfallen. His knowledge about God didn't lead him to true belief. So these examples make clear... That knowing and believing the truth about God, even if it's accurate, isn't, isn't the complete definition of biblical belief. And I think that's important for us to know in the church because the church writ large, because we don't make this mistake here, but I think we've all seen and known people who count themselves as believers, sort of nominal Christians who think this is enough. Right? You'll, you'll talk to people. You'll run into people that'll say, yes, yes, of course I believe in the Bible. Yes, of course I believe in Jesus. Yeah, my parents were, were, were believers. My grandma was a believer. I grew up in the church. Yes, of course I believe in the Bible. And they think and they read, you know, John 3, 16, and, and they think that, that that's enough for them to believe, right? But what they're really doing is just talking about, a, like, a acknowledgement of the truths about Jesus. They're not, they're not talking about anything more. The character of that assertion is the same as if you had said, you, you studied history, right? Yes, fact. Like, you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Yes, fact, right? Yes, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, fact, right? That the character of that belief is the same as these any other assertions of fact. And we can see from these examples in Scripture that just the acknowledgement of that truth isn't enough. You need something more. And we see here, too, exactly what that more is. It's the truth. That second component of biblical belief, excuse me, is trust. The second component of biblical belief is trust. You have to acknowledge the truth of the gospel 
and then make a decision based on that truth to enter into a trust relationship with Jesus Christ. Indeed, the word belief that's translated here in the Gospel of John and throughout the New Testament includes a component of to have confidence in, to, to entrust yourself with. And that's why, you know, when Jesus is asking in, chapter, in verse 35, more accurately, he's asking, do you have confidence in the Son of God? Do you entrust yourself with the Son of God? That's why the Gospels over and over again don't say, don't talk about believing Jesus. They talk about believing in Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, do you believe the Son of God? He says, do you believe in the Son of God? There's a critical difference there. When I say, I believe George Washington is the first president of the United States, that's just an assertion of fact. When I say, I believe in Jesus Christ, that's a confession of faith. That's the critical difference. And the translators in the New Testament add that word in to make it believe in, to capture that component of trust in, in, in the text. And so I think all of this, now that we have that definition, I think all of that leads many of us here to ask what is a, a very important question as followers who have trusted ourselves to Christ, and that is, how could anyone, if you know the truth about God and the truth about Christ, not come to trust him? How is it possible that you know what Christ has done for you and yet live your life indifferent to him? And I think we can see the answer to that, too, in these biblical examples of people who accepted truths about Jesus, accepted truths about God, but nonetheless didn't come to trust him. And I think with each, each of these individuals, what we'll see is that they had something in their life, something in their mind or their heart that they held more dear than their own salvation, more dear to them than Jesus. And that was their obstacle. So, you know, we've seen over and over again, going back to the Pharisees, I know we're really hard on them, but we go back to the Pharisees and we see that, that as we've seen in the, in the book of John particularly, they were so sure of their self-righteousness, so sure of their own holiness that they didn't believe they needed a savior. They had become the source of their own righteousness. They had become gods in their own sight. And that was more important to them than their own true salvation. That was their obstacle. And returning again to the, the rich young ruler that we had just talked about, you guys all remember how this story plays out, right? He asks Jesus what, his, what he needed to do for his salvation. And what does Jesus tell him? He tells him, you need to go, you need to sell everything you own, and you need to give the money to the poor. And we read in Scripture that Jesus told him that in love. Why? Because Jesus knew that in that man's heart of hearts, he valued his wealth more than he valued his salvation. That was his obstacle. And so we could come up with many other examples of this, right? This is what the, the parable of the sower is all about. All these obstacles that could come between us and trusting Christ. But I think the point for us as believers and the point for non-believers yet is this. It's, it's that if, if you've heard the gospel and there's some part of you that accepts the truth of the gospel claims as it should because they are true, but you nonetheless find yourself unable to quite take that step to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to examine your heart, examine your mind, find out what that obstacle is. I can promise you, and you can talk to almost anyone in this room, whatever it is, is making you a slave. Not a beloved son, not a beloved daughter of the one true God. I urge you, whatever it is, let it go. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And for those of us who, who are already saved, who already trust the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I, I urge us to, to help 
and be sensitive to these obstacles and the people to whom we're witnessing, right? We have to help them see these obstacles in their lives and see them for what they are, slave masters. We have to lovingly and prayerfully show them the truth of the gospel, the freedom that it brings, and help them become free of whatever these obstacles are. And scripture gives us examples of that. And so here we are. We've defined belief, the objective and the subjective component. We've observed obstacles that can come between us and others and, and believing in Jesus Christ the way we've defined it here. And so I think we can really come to the question that people always ask themselves when this subject comes up. What is that question? How do I know? How do I know I really believe? How do I know I believe the accurate truths about the God of the Bible? How do I know that I've actually accepted him as my Lord and Savior? Put differently, what is the hallmark of true biblical belief? And the fact is that Scripture gives us multiple such hallmarks, but the one I want to talk about and what I think is an excellent one is this. It's risk. It's risk. Maybe this example will help you. And we're going to do a little social experiment together. And before I... I'll start with this. You guys didn't see this coming, did you? So here's a balloon. And before I go any further with our social experiments, I'm going to say that what I'm going to pick up right now is an, it's a BB gun. It's essentially, uh, it's essentially harmless, okay? And so th- that's, you can't be too careful. Um, I know there are people probably packing. So it's a, this is a BB gun, I promise, okay? So as part of this social experiment, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some representations to you about myself, right? I'll say, um, I'll start with, I, I grew up out in the country, sort of on a farm. I had a, a, a BB gun, much like this. Um, when I was a kid, I shot probably, my parents are here, thousands of BBs through this thing, right? So I have a lot of experience that way. Um, I grew up hunting later on, and then I joined the Marine Corps. Um, I was in the Marine Corps for six years. They teach you how to shoot really far and really well in the Marine Corps. And then the final thing that I'll tell you is that I was in here over the weekend, and I practiced this a lot. You can't quite see the holes in the wall, I think, from where you guys are. But I hit the balloon every single time, okay? So these are my representations to you, all right? So, show of hands, how many people think I'm going to hit this balloon when I shoot at it? All right, awesome. I love it. I was going to, no, no, keep them up, please. Keep them up. I'm just going to set this down. Keep them up, please. I was going to count, but there's too many. I love it. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. And so, how many of you believe I would hit this balloon to the point where you would be willing to hold it for me while I shot at it. I didn't count a lot less hands. All right? Finally, how many of you believe that I would hit this balloon well enough that you would William Tell style hold it in your, in your teeth like this? Anyone? Awesome. So yes, thank you. So I do have a, a couple. So who is it? Ezra, you put your hand up, right? Okay, so I'm going to need you to come up and sign this waiver. No, I'm kidding. I'm, <laughs> I'll stop the social experiment there before uh, Shabana tackles me. But here's the point. I know I digress a little bit. Here's the point. Who among you believed in me? Was it the people who first raised their hands? Presumably all of you believed the facts I'd given you, right? They were all true except practicing in here on the weekend. Was it those people? 
I don't think so. Not the way we're defining it here, right? Of those people probably just had the objective belief that the Pharisees had in me, right? They, 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 they believed the facts I'd said and, and probably that there was a rational connection between that and a conclusion, but did they really trust in me? Who was it that really trusted in me, that entrusted themselves to me the way we're talking about here? We all know the answer to that, right? It's intuitive. It was the people who are willing. It was Ezra's, and, and thank you. And, and I'll note, too, that my parents and, my, and Jenny's hands went down right away. So <laughs> take for that whatever, whatever it was. But seriously, it's, we all know intuitively that the, the people who truly believed in me, who trusted in me, were the ones who are willing to take risk based on that belief. It's risk. That's the hallmark of true belief. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, A Grief Observed. Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound so long as you merely use it to cord up a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Risk. It's risk based on that belief. That's one of the biblical hallmarks of true belief. Think about it. Think about Abraham. When he came to believe in God, what did he do? He left the safety of his tents, of his father's tents, and he became a wanderer in a strange land, in a dangerous land, right? Think about Noah. Noah spent years building a ship in a world that had never seen rain, much less a flood, based on his belief in God. That's risk. Think about Moses. Moses strolled into the throne room of one of the most powerful and capricious tyrants in all of history with nothing but a staff and a stutter and demanded that Pharaoh free the Israelites. That's risk. Think about the New Testament martyrs who risked and paid it all in obedience to Christ. Think about the blind man in our passage today. We know from our study that acknowledging Christ openly would have been expulsion from the synagogue. From the context that John Tillery gave us two weeks ago, we knew that for this blind man who depended on his religious community for, for his basic needs and support, expulsion from the synagogue would have essentially been a, a death sentence. He wouldn't have that support that he needed. And we know from what Pavan told us just last week that despite these real-world risks, this man stood up boldly and, and confronted the Pharisees when they sought to use him to undermine Jesus' ministry. And then finally, we see in our passage today that this man openly and verbally acknowledged his belief in Christ and he worshipped him. This is risk. This is risk based on his belief. So I think what this demands is that we look to ourselves. I think we have to, admit, we have to evaluate our own lives. If we truly believe that we are sinners that, were damned, that would be damned to an eternity of torment in hell, absent salvation, if we believe that Christ Jesus in love endured unimaginable torment on his cross, on the cross, in order to purchase us that salvation, if we believe that this world is just a flash of light compared to an eternity in glory with that Savior that was bought with his blood, if we believe all of those things, and if we've really come to trust in him as our Savior based on our belief, how would that impact our lives? How would that impact our risk tolerance as we seek to obey him? I think we all have to think about this in, in the different domains of our, of our lives. Think about this in the domain of marriage and our relationships. Unconditional love that we're called to by Jesus 
is an enormous risk. Witnessing to the unsaved, standing up for the truth in a culture that's hostile to Christianity, that's another risk. Think about your finances, your career, your time. Investing these things to the glory of Christ rather than in pursuit of worldly things all seems like on its face a risk, doesn't it? So we have to ask ourselves, to what extent does our life in any of these domains and our our risk tolerance in any of these domains demonstrate our belief in Jesus Christ? And so, what should the practical effect be of this self-evaluation? Well, for one, I understand from talking to other believers that for a lot of people, there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty about this question, this question of whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ, the way the Bible defines it here and as the way we've discussed it. I've talked to believers who have done altar calls over and over again, who've prayed the sinner's prayer over and over again, even believers who have been baptized over and over again, just in case that first one didn't quite take. These believers are afraid they haven't quite crossed the Jordan. And we all know that would be a torturous way to live. But that angst is, is a little understandable, isn't it? What we're talking about here in this subjective component is what we believe. It's, it's what, we, what we think, right? Sometimes we find ourselves double-minded. We talked about that from James this morning in Sunday school, that we can sometimes find ourselves unsure what we really believe and think. And so this angst is sort of understandable. But we know from Scripture that God doesn't want us to have uncertainty about our salvation. He tells us this over and over again. One example um, where the apostle, the apostle John writes in his first epistle this, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's 1 John five twelve to 13 God wants us to know that we have eternal life. Now, I think one way to, look, to achieve some of that certainty is to look back at your life as a believer and identify times when you've taken risks on Jesus' behalf. For anyone who is a believer, it won't take long to identify such a thing. We know that the minute we start believing in Christ, we're convicted and challenged to start living in ways that seem counterintuitive, ways that seem risky from a worldly perspective. And the minute new you, the minute reborn you, starts doing things that the old you would never have done, and the reason you're doing those things is out of obedience to Christ. I think you have excellent, excellent evidence of your, your belief and your trust relationship in Christ. In, con- in contrast, if you're a follower of Christ and you've examined your life and you see an unwillingness to risk on Christ's behalf, I think that's a, it's a, it's a call for us to go back and revisit our knowledge about God that led us to trust him in the first place to go back and, 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 and revisit how much we love him, how good he is to us, how grateful we are to him, and to use that as an encouragement to live our lives boldly through acts of faith. Now, I'll say um, what John Tillery always says from up here too. Don't hear what I'm not saying, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that it's these acts of faith that save you, right? That would be a works-based salvation, a works-based faith. And if I were preaching that from up here, people really would get up and walk out, right? That's not what I'm saying. And I'm also not saying, I'm not urging you to doubt your salvation if your life doesn't, doesn't embody a Francis Chan message, right? I mean, all of us are sinners. We're all going to fail. We're all going to sin. We're all going to chicken out. Think about it. Think about Abraham. Think about Jonah. Think about Peter. 
These are exemplary believers in the Bible who lied, who ran away, and in Peter's case, he denied Jesus in his presence while Jesus was going about the crucifixion. We too are going to fail. That's not a reason to doubt our salvation. But what I am saying is, if we look at ourselves, we examine ourselves, and we see that we're not living out, our lives don't reflect what for us is our deepest held and most cherished belief. It has to be a call for us to change. And this is especially true because while it might seem like a risk, risking for Christ is in fact no risk at all. As Jim Elliott says famously, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What he's talking about is that risking for Christ is a joy in this life and it's certain life in eternity. 1 Peter chapter 4 Verse 12 tells us that too, reading through verse 14. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though, thump- as though something strange were happening. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In the Sermon of the, on the Mount, Jesus himself says this to us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. That's what it means to truly believe in God and to risk much based on this belief. It means to be in a place where you can risk and suffer persecution and have joy and rejoice in God and have certainty no matter what happens. And so now we come to the end of our nearly hour-long definition of a single word. I hope that by now most of you agree with me that this is, in fact, one of the most important definitions we'll ever know. And now, armed with that definition, I think we can go back to where we started. In John chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. But this time, I'm going to put Jesus' question to you, to all of us. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I pray for all of us the answer is yes, a resounding yes. Because if the answer is yes, we know that we can live our faith boldly, knowing that we'll be blessed now and eternity. If the answer is yes, we can join Martin Luther and we'll come full circle here when he writes that that finally, when he finally understood God, he finally understood the gospel, he finally believed the way we've defined it here and he just revels in the joy and the certainty that that belief brought him despite risk and despite uncertainty. If our answer is yes, we can join Martin Luther as he writes this. Belief is a living, bold trust in God's grace so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. Because of it, you freely, willfully, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, and suffer all manner of things in order to love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. May we all believe in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for the God that you are and the God that you've revealed yourself as in Scripture. We thank you for your work on the cross for us. We thank you that you are a God that's worthy of our belief, that's true, that loves us, and has suffered for our salvation. May we feel the full weight of that belief, and may we live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.